Tonight we have telehealth, post-emergency executive orders in Illinois. What you need to do, what you need to know. Uh, I am delighted to introduce Colleen Flannery. She is the IPTA executive director and she will be presenting tonight. And um, for those of you who might not know, Colleen has been with the IPTA since 2007 and has been instrumental in moving the PT profession forward in Illinois. She has served as both the executive director as well as a lobbyist for the IPTA for the last 15 years and has helped negotiate key pieces of legislation for physical therapy, including dry needling, direct access, and the scope of PT practice. So now we ask you to sit back, enjoy, and get ready for Colleen. So Colleen, if you wanna go ahead and share your screen, and I also need you to unmute. All right, well, thank you very much. Um, I hope you can see my screen now. Um, We'll just advance here. A lot of it has transpired very quickly over the last several years in the telehealth landscape. And the purpose of tonight's presentation is not to teach you how to utilize telehealth in your practice. It's really just to go over what has happened and kind of um, where we started with telehealth, what happened kind of as it was temporarily accelerated during the pandemic, what has now become permanent, and then what, what, at least to the best of our knowledge, we are predicting is going to happen in the future as far as rules and regs go. Uh, <clears throat> full disclosure, I am not a physical therapist. I don't play one on TV. Um, I just run the association. Um, but in the course of this presentation, I may say we when I'm speaking about the physical therapy profession because I do represent the association and represent the profession, and that sort of just becomes the natural way to refer to it instead of saying the physical therapy association or the physical therapy um, profession, I just say we, because I feel like I've been around for a long time. I love you guys, and it's a part of our world. So um, moving on, um, the program objectives that were published today, basically we're gonna talk about some key pieces. We're gonna talk about insurance plans and self-pay and how um, the coverage and payment parity, what happened within telehealth services. Then we're gonna talk about the patient's right to choose, um, the obligations of the insurance and providers and insurance ensuring the patients receive the care they need, technology requirements as far as HIPAA goes, telehealth across state borders, who needs to be in Illinois, the provider or the patient, and then the new proposed PT rules that are directly uh, related to telehealth. So, so I like to think that somewhere in time, a very long time ago, long before smartphones and even flip phones, back when we had landlines, a small family doctor received a call from a frantic parent that made the monumental decision to call in a script to the 24-hour Walgreens because the two-year-old had most certainly had developed a raging ear infection on a Saturday night at 9 p.m. And it was either send that family to the ER and the ER was gonna to have to deal with the screaming two-year-old or make the prudent decision to call in that prescription and give birth to telehealth. So we all know that's really not what happened. 
But in, but the true fact is that was a version of telehealth. That was really what was happening back when I raised kids, when a lot of you raised children. Um, you might have been the recipient of one of those prescriptions. But think about it. That was just basically a practical format for physicians to provide care um, outside of the office. It just didn't have a fancy name called telehealth at the time. But there's this lovely timeline here that explains that telehealth went back all the way, they will say, to actually 500 BC when fire and light signals were used by Greeks and Romans to spread messages about, the, about plague, spreading plague. Um, in 1940s, there were radio, radiological images that were sent by telephone. In the 60s, um, you had psych consults performed by closed circuit TV. And then in the 80s, of course, um, you had the internet coming into play, which made huge jumps on how we were able to communicate. And then in 2010, the electronic health record hit. Uh, in 2016, there was funding to expand the use of telehealth in rural areas. And then of course, in 2020, we had the pandemic. So when the pandemic began, um, it was important to ensure access to physical therapy, um, and that was our first concern as the association was to make sure that physical therapy was considered an essential part of healthcare, and that meant that the clinic could actually stay open. So when everyone was being told to stay home and shut down, we had to make sure that um, that the government understood that physical therapy was an essential part of of their of healthcare and not shut down physical therapy. So once that was accomplished. The next piece was to make sure that physical therapy was included in any executive orders um, related to healthcare, and particularly ones that involved telehealth, because we wanted to make sure that there was that alternative in place um, to protect both the patients and the healthcare providers, the physical therapists, the PTAs, um, so that we were not um, contributing to the spread of the virus. So the first order that um, affected telehealth was actually uh, the, the COVID order 2020-09. And that was issued in March. And that one was specific to telehealth and it created the first definition of telehealth relative to the pandemic. Um, without directly saying so, it released some of the HIPAA requirements. And then it also instructed the insurance companies how they were going to manage telehealth services. So it was a quick, short, simple solution to we need to implement telehealth today without a lot of debate. So they cut to the quick and said, it's just going to happen. Um, it was a short document. Um, it included the, the section one was the definition of what telehealth services during the pandemic were going to include. Um, some important parts was it included healthcare and psych and substance use disorder treatment. Uh, it didn't matter the location. It didn't have to be within a healthcare facility. Uh, or come from a health care facility. It could be the use, use of many electronic methods from everything from a landline and a cell phone to a Facebook Messenger and Google Hangouts video or Skype and FaceTime. Could also be used video conferencing. They really let all, all rules become very lax. It was just trying to get services available immediately. Um, so that we could limit the uh, a number of people that were being exposed. Second was payment parity, and this was an important piece for um, 
most providers was what were you going to get paid for switching to telehealth services? Um, and so the executive order said that basically the, the, the level of care needed to be the equivalent of in-person care, but also the insurance companies had to pay the same, uh, they had to honor the same fee schedule for that level of care. So they couldn't differentiate and offer a lesser payment for telehealth services than they could for as if they if you saw the patient in person. The, the third part was utilize, utilization review. Again, they couldn't make it more difficult for people to utilize telehealth. Um, they couldn't add additional approval requirements for care. They couldn't add more pre-authorization requirements than the plan traditionally had. They couldn't limit the number of telehealth visits to less than what uh, they would traditionally give for in-person visits. It had to, everything had to be the same as if it was in-person. And then finally, they waived the copay. So this was an interesting piece that, you know, certainly patients benefited from is that uh, no copays were collected for healthcare. Uh, it incentivized patients to opt for uh, telehealth care, if at all possible, it, because it would limit the exposure of the patients and the health cares by reducing the volume of in-person care to what was absolutely necessary. And it was always to be at the discretion of the health care provider. So in other words, if you, if you felt the person needed to come in, you could certainly bring the patient in. But the idea behind it was if we could incentivize the patients to stay at home in any way, shape, or form, they were all about doing that at the time. And then there was any willing provider. Um, and this does not mean that any willing provider could provide any service that was outside their scope of practice, anything that they didn't provide before. What it meant was, even if you didn't provide telehealth services before this executive order came into play, you could start providing them immediately. So it didn't mean that you had to have a fancy system set up and all your rules and regs and policies in place in your workplace setting. You could just literally start seeing patients with your phone and FaceTime tomorrow um, so that you could continue um, providing the care that your patients needed. And remember, this applied to across the spectrum of healthcare. This was not specific to physical therapy or any profession. This was just generally written to apply to all healthcare professions. There was one other executive order that came out a month later, and this was also um, relate. This also kind of tied into telehealth, so I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. This was the one that um, allowed the Department of Professional Regulation, Finance and Pro Professional Regulation, to take actions to increase the number of licensed individuals. So what they were able to do was then to issue their own um, the department's orders. Um, to create special ways to either give people their licenses back, to re in other words, reinstate licenses for lapsed healthcare professionals who say physicians who had given up their license in the last two years, they had retired, but were willing to come back to the workforce because of the pandemic, could quickly get their license reinstated. It also created a registry for out-of-state licensees to temporarily work in Illinois to cover work shortages. So in other words, if you had a company that um, 
had staffing in Wisconsin and Illinois and you were short staffed in Illinois, your Wisconsin licensed PTs could sign up, sign into this registry and come work in your Illinois clinics temporarily to cover that work shortage. Um, uh, and at, to that end, they could also practice telehealth from their state if they registered in Illinois as an out-of-state provider. And that's basically all it took. And then we had, we had telehealth in physical therapy practice across Illinois um, as long as we were under the declaration, uh, an emergency declaration for Illinois. So while that was all being instituted and everyone was figuring out how to make that work, a coalition was formed of most of the, of the healthcare providers, along with a lot of stakeholder groups that uh, represented consumers and then, and then the hospital associations as well. And it was, um, and basically it was Protect Illinois Telehealth Coverage. And the coalition wanted to say, basically say, okay, we have a temporary solution, but long-term we need to, we need to implement what we're building because once this horse gets out the gate, we're not going to get it back in. So we need to expedite the process, get these, these pieces in place so that when the pandemic is over um, and the emergency orders are over, we have a program to transition to that will govern telehealth in the future. And we can move forward in Illinois with plans. Uh, so they, for the first thing that was created was a 10 principles for protecting telehealth. So the group of stakeholders developed this list. There's the long list, and then there's the next to it, I put the basically the short points of what it meant. Um, but basically, patient choice, it's up to a patient whether they want to receive telehealth or come in for in-person visits. Uh, choice of providers, they shouldn't be limited to a list of providers who only provide in-person or only provide telehealth. Um, payment parity, that the services should be, if they are, if they're, the services are supposed to um, be equivalent to in-person, then they should be paid the same. Uh, no separate utilization criteria, no geographic or facility restrictions. So what that would mean be in other words, you couldn't say um, you can't, you can only deliver telehealth services to a certain geographical area or a geographic uh, distance from your clinic. So in other words, um, so to set limits of why and when people could provide, could who could access um, telehealth based on their geographic location. Um, all providers should be able to opt in to offer telehealth. And it should be a decision between the provider and the patient. In other words, an insurance company shouldn't mandate that anyone use telehealth services. Either, either tell the provider that a patient has to use telehealth or the, tell the patient that they are required to have their services delivered via telehealth. Um, origin, originating sites should be able to be patients' homes. And the provider should be able to choose how to deliver the service as long as it was HIPAA compliant. And then there should be an option for a facility fee when um, to, to, to support investments in technology by reimbursing facilities a facility fee to a facility or other provider organization that acts as an originating site 
where the patient's located at the time telehealth services are provided if the patient services are not provided in their home environment. So those were the 10 um, principles that this group agreed upon and then wanted to negotiate legislation um, that would encompass these piece of it pieces. And they felt that that would be a strong a foundation for telehealth to operate in Illinois. Uh, this is a list of who was members of the coalition and you will see the IPTA is on there along with groups uh, like the MS uh, and then the Hospital Association, Heartland Alliance, uh, mental health counselors. So there was quite the social workers. There was quite a variety of groups involved in it. And, uh, and uh, they all worked pretty hard to come to resolution and then also to, to lobby and get social, um, get public, you know, media press and that to support it and get the word out and get, um, and get consumers interested in it and advocating as well. So, the amazing thing was it only took a year. Um, this, the process started in July of 2020. And on July 22nd of 2021, House Bill 3308 was signed into law, which expanded telehealth access and made all of the new telehealth laws permanent. Um, and uh, and they took effect immediately. So that meant there was no reason for most of the things that had been in the executive orders that were um, ex that had been uh, being continued by month by month on the telehealth that that uh, 2029, 2020-9. Um, most of those did, were no longer needed because this was going to supersede them. Um, so when we look now at that document, a few things to consider is prior to it, there was a telehealth act. And we passed that in 2018. Um, physical therapists were stakeholders in, in that legislation. And that was the, one of the first, that was when we started defining the terms that were going to um, be used in telehealth for Illinois. One of them being who was a healthcare professional under the telehealth act. We made sure physical therapists were included in that list. And from 2018 to 2020, uh, there was a couple of, um, one year the dentists were added. Um, and there was an effort to add, um, I think when the, when the pandemic hit, they were, they were working on adding uh, the acupuncturist to the list. And in the process of the telehealth, this telehealth coalition and working, um, we agreed instead that it was better to just, instead of every year, each group having to lobby and be added to this list, to add language that made it inclusive and not exclusive by saying, but it's not limited to. So part of the legislation that was passed, we'll call it the you know, uh, HB 3308, um, amended the Telehealth Act to include the language saying, but it's not limited to. So now basically all healthcare professions in Illinois can utilize telehealth. Um, the other part was to address the HIPAA and they did it really simply with just the statement, it doesn't even say HIPAA, it just says telehealth services provided pursuant to the section shall be consistent with all federal and state privacy, security, and confidentiality, confidentiality laws, rules, or regulations. So this was the nod to the HIPAA compliance. 
um, without having to cite all of the rules and regs that go along with HIPAA compliance and keep it so that anything that changes at the federal level or if other, elsewhere in state legislation, um, we didn't have to continue to revisit this. If this is just stays in place. There were other definitions that were um, kind of important ones that carried through um, and that are referenced in HB 3308. I just wanna go through a few of them so that we're clear on what we're talking about. First of all, telehealth services, um, and the definition is here, but it's evaluation, diagnosis, or interpretation of data between a remote location and a licensed care a healthcare profession that generates interaction or treatment recommendations. It includes telemedicine and the delivery of healthcare services, including mental health and substance abuse. It's regardless of a patient location, it's provided by an interactive telecommunication system, um, asynchronous store and forward system, remote patient monitoring technologies, e-visits or virtual check-ins. So this is what now telehealth services is, is defined as in Illinois, and that is part of the Telehealth Act. Virtual check-in, um, it's interesting, this is the patient-initiated communication. So this is when a patient calls after, a after seeing you in your office within the last week to do ask follow-up questions. That's a virtual check-in or a communication when they call in and and you do a screening call or, or they ask some questions and you end up scheduling them for an appointment or a procedure um, within the next 24 hours or the soonest available appointment. So that's what they're, we're, we're, we're referring to as a virtual check-in. An e-visit is a patient-initiated non-face-to-face communication through an online patient portal between an established patient and a healthcare professional. So remember, these are saying they're established patients. These are not new patients. And then remote patient monitoring is the use of a mo mobile medical device or technology to monitor someone's healthcare um, information. Originating site, and this is where people get confused, so I think it's important to make sure you understand that, is the originating site is where the patient is located at the time of the service. And then the distant site is where the healthcare professional is rendering the services from. So those are the pieces that House Bill 3308 addressed in the tele, you know, those are the pieces that were referenced in 3308 from the Telehealth Act. That then the bulk of 3308 actually amended the Illinois Insurance Code. And the first thing is it was inclusive of all telehealth services, e-visits, and virtual check-ins. So we know what those are. And then the second part is it, it, it provided reimbursement, it, it says the insurance companies must provide a reimbursement to that originating site at the time a health, ser health service is rendered, a telehealth service. So that was, remember on that list of 10, um, one of the things that was the facility fee. So the insurance code does now mandate that um, insurance companies reimburse 
um, a, or pay a facility fee if if one is utilized as the originating site. Then there's a whole list of insurance code insurers cannot when it comes to telehealth. So um, a lot of times how laws work is they can do something unless it specifically says they can't. So this law says they can't do a lot of things. So they cannot require that an in-person contact occur before the provision of telehealth services. This means that yes, your first visit with a patient could be a virtual visit. They could be a brand new patient. They do not have to be an established patient. Second, it requires you can they cannot require that a patient um, or a healthcare professional prove or document that there's a hardship or access barrier to an in-person consultation in order for the insurance company to cover and reimburse for a telehealth visit. They don't have to prove it's a hardship or a barrier. It can just be the patient's choice whether they would like to receive the service via telehealth. And, but at the same time, it requires, they cannot require the use of telehealth when the healthcare professional has determined it not be appropriate. And that was another thing that was on our list. And then they also cannot require the use of telehealth when the patient has elected to receive in-person care. That's that patient choice. Is the patient gets to choose whether they would prefer, even if the, if, if the healthcare professional offers them the option of telehealth, the patient always has the right to choose in-person care instead. Insurers cannot require that a healthcare professional be present with the patient at the originating site in their home, in other words, while the visit takes place unless the treating professional deems it necessary. This was a real topic for discussion. So this came into play with the, uh, with the insurance companies and with others who were very concerned about safety and particularly when it came to physical therapy, and is the patient safe in their home receiving the care? And so that's going to be a decision that you as a healthcare professional, as a physical therapist, will have to make given the circumstances and whether the patient can safely perform what you're asking them to do in the, in the confines of their environment, or whether you need to have a PTA or an aide in the home or another family member or friend um, with them to ensure that ensure they're safe. Um, but the insurance companies cannot mandate that, that that a healthcare professional be there. They also cannot create the geographic or facility restrictions or requirements. Um, they cannot require a healthcare professional or a facility to offer or provide telehealth. It is completely up to you if you want to offer your your patients telehealth services, or if you want to stay strictly inpatient or in person. Um, and they cannot require um, patients to use telehealth services, e-visits, or virtual check-ins, or require patients to use a separate panel of healthcare professionals to receive those telehealth services. So again, not a separate network of healthcare, of healthcare telehealth providers. They can't require it. Um, and they can't require people to say, oh, you have to have an e-visit before you can see your physician in person, or you have to have an e-eval before you can see your physical therapist in person. Um, 
they patients have to have the choice of how they would like to to um, access their health care. Um, insurers cannot impose a utilization review requirements that are unnecessary, duplicative, or unwarranted, or impose any treatment limitations, prior authorization documenting, or any other requirements that are more stringent than what they already apply when services are rendered in person. And then the only exception is that they may require a procedure code modifier to document that the service was provided via telehealth. That's the only thing they can do. When it comes to the patient deductible, um, they put they don't say specifically that they have to be waived anymore, but they cannot exceed the out-of-pocket cost of the service if it was provided in person. So we talked, you know, I mentioned earlier that there was a huge incentive for patients to opt for uh, virtual care during the pandemic because it was it was free to them. There, all their deductibles, copays, coinsurance were waived, and they got to see their care at you know they had the convenience of in-home care with no out-of-pocket cost. A concern that was raised um, with the stakeholders on copays, and that was that if 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 the insurance companies in, continue to incentivize patients with reduction of copays, then it would be difficult for um, healthcare professionals to get their patients in, even if they felt that the patient would benefit more from in-person care than virtual care. So it is they. So the our ultimate goal was to keep them pair. You know, continue on the parity model that they would be the same. However, what they determined was it cannot exceed it, so it can't be any greater, but there isn't anything say, saying it could not be less. Now, arguably, we could see that the insurance companies could make it less, but there is no incentive on their end to do so because they're not saving any money on a virtual visit over an in-person visit because, the, uh, because of the payment parity component, that regardless of how the service is delivered, they're paying the provider the same amount of money. So there is, so they can change those variables to, to adjust how they do for individual insurance policies, but it does not, there's no incentive for them to do so to encourage people to utilize telehealth more than in-person care. Uh, so, and then when it comes to payment parity, this was the hardest thing for the insurance companies to get over because they were convinced that it was cheaper for everyone to provide virtual care than it was in-person care, and they wanted a separate fee schedule. So, the compromise was until January 1st of 2028, the rate paid for the services must be the same regardless of whether it's delivered in person or via telehealth. So, we have that payment parity until that date. But at the same time, a report will be due in 2026. So they will study the impact of telehealth under the rules and regs that have been put into place until that time. And then the General Assembly has from 20, basically has 2026 and 2027 to review it and determine appropriate legislative action. 
And that action could be amendments to telehealth um, to the insurance code. It could be an extension of the payment parity component. It could be other changes as, as kind of we become more experienced in the telehealth um, arena. Um, there'll be more data collected, more information to share with the General Assembly so that they can make decisions on what other rules and regs need to be implemented or changed um, after this basically at basic five-year period of working with within the constraints that they have put into law. So when we went through the list, they checked all the boxes. Um, the, the stakeholder group was pretty pleased with the outcomes. The only thing that was hedging was the 2028 date for payment parity, but for the most part, everything else was met. Um, I thought it was interesting that Senator uh, Maddie Hunter quoted that um, patients need flexibility, receive the treatments they need, whether it be due to isolation, to a, due to an illness or remote services due to a lack of mobility. Um, let's hope that physical therapists can improve that mobility component one way or another. Um, so executive orders. So once July 22nd rolled around and the new telehealth access was signed into law, the executive order 2020-09 was basically rescinded with the exception of two small amendments. Um, to All that was kept was sections nine and 10. Section nine basically gave, still was still kept in that basically gives um, providers some flexibility in the implementation of video communication technology. So it gives them more time to develop more advanced systems and products to utilize it. However, it they should not you should not be using anything um, that has public facing and public facing is are things like Facebook Live and TikTok. I don't know what Twitch is, but um, but um, other systems that are more self-contained, as long as you're um, notifying patients that third-party applications potentially introduce privacy risks, you can still use them. Uh, but so it's still it's it's asking that you follow the guidelines of the of the of the Department of Health and Human Services. However, there is no strict requirement right now, as long as this executive order is in place, that you comply with all of the HIPAA um, the HIPAA requirements when using telehealth. And then the other one does not really apply to physical therapy, but they uh, they still keep Section 10 alive, which allows the reinstatement of a, of um, of physicians whose license have been lapsed or inactive for less than three years to um, to be quickly reinstate licenses to be reinstated in you know to to increase the uh, workforce. So that's all that's left of the original telehealth um, executive order. And other than that, we are now fully into telehealth law. So all of those components apply. And that brings us to a few questions that we seem to be getting. Um, oh, I'm sorry. We also still do have the registry of out-of-state licensees to temporary work in Illinois. 
um, because we still have a workforce shortage. And then there is a, still a quick reinstatement for LAPS Healthcare Alliance licenses, and these are still under that other executive order. So who can I treat through telehealth if I'm licensed in Illinois? So you can find that in the Telehealth Act. And under Section 10, Practice Authority, a healthcare professional treating a patient located in the state through telehealth services must be licensed or authorized to practice in Illinois. So this comes to that, comes back to that definition of originating sites. They have to be located, and then by located, it's physically. It is not having an address. Um, that means that they live in Illinois, but they're actually on vacation in New York. It means where they're physically located at the time you deliver the service. So, and that means, and, and that extends to if someone is visiting Illinois and they live in New York and they, you can deliver telehealth services to them as long as they are geographically, physically in Illinois at the time, you can deliver telehealth services to them if you are licensed in Illinois. But what if you are physically in Wisconsin, but the patient is currently in Illinois? So again, your license is to practice medicine in Illinois. If the patient is in Illinois, you can be, you are the distance site, you can be anywhere because your license is anchored in Illinois. So as long as you only practice medicine in Illinois, be it in person or virtually, and that person is in Illinois that you are practicing medicine or physical therapy on, you can do so. But if you have an established patient who, here's the example, would like to continue care via telehealth while they winter in Arizona, they're no longer physically located in the state. So, that would mean you, even if they're an established patient, you can't practice in person or virtually in Arizona without a license. Because Illinois' laws do not extend across state borders. So you would either have to have a license or a privilege to practice in Arizona in order to provide that continuum of care to that patient. And in order to determine what you needed to do that, you would have to go to Arizona state law and find out what their requirements are. Now, some states have, because of, because of the pandemic, there are some other rules that are still fluctuating. So temporarily, you might be able to actually treat that patient this winter in Arizona because Arizona might have a similar law where you can register as an out-of-state provider, um, but you would have to check with that state and find out the specific requirements of that state for you to determine whether you could practice that type of care. Florida also has an interesting circumstance. We don't have time today to go through that, but um, they have a separate system set up uh, specifically because of, they'll call it the snowbird population, um, but that does provide for people to um, uh, have uh, provide care for their established patients through kind of a limited license registry, uh, but that's the only state that really has set up a specific model that's permanent. Okay, um, the last part that I'm gonna quickly go through here is the proposed rules for physical therapy. So this is the part of what's the future. 
so we the the laws that were written were broad and covered all healthcare professions. So they were written very broad, um, nothing very specific to any profession. And then it's up to each licensed group to determine what specifically has to be done to to fine tune those rules and through rule or through act through their act to fit the requirements of their scope. So the rules for physical therapy were published uh, about a month or so. Um, I believe November 7th is the last day to um, put to send comment to JCAR, but we'll go over quickly what they mean and what and kind of the intent behind the language. It was very specific um, and uh, and it took a lot of consideration of circumstances as to and and then and then also how it how it had to fit within the the telehealth act and then the new telehealth rules to make sure that everything fit you know conformed um, as it needed to. So first of all, we wanted to be very clear that physical therapist assistants could also provide telehealth. So that's the first part of the rule, proposed rule. It says is a physical therapist assistant working under the general supervision. We wanted to make sure we were clear on PTAs can and how they needed to be supervised. Um, uh, and then the, and then they utilize telehealth as defined in Section 5 of the Telehealth Act. We're referencing the, the correct document. And then under the following conditions. So first, we want to describe how so PTs would have a guideline of how it should be used. It should be used to address access issues, enhance care delivery, and increase the physical therapist's ability to assess and direct the patient's performance in their own environment. So this language is actually a recommendation um, from the APTA on how to frame this to describe how telehealth should be utilized within our state. Um, it also, we wanted to be very clear that, um, and I'll go back to the first slide, that it should be physical therapist and physical therapy practice because we want to be clear that it should be a PT and a PTA and um, with the PT supervising the PTA and not a physician or chiropractor because that's another problem we've run through. So every time we can we can kind of restate that and um, emphasize it, we want to do so. So that is very clear um, in in how that relationship works. And then. In their own environment, again, that home that they, you know, they that it, they could be treated in their home environment. Um, and we expect that physical therapists will provide services in a variety of private settings. Um, it could be homes, dorm rooms, offices, um, the park. Okay, so it, but figuring out where they're going to implementing that, how they perform in their own environment, could be essential to improving function. Um, access to care refers to uh, not only to geographic limitations, but other physical or mental health conditions that make in-person care a challenge. Um, so, uh, so just a regular Chicago snow day or a pandemic could be the challenge, but it could be something way more significant. And that's what we wanted to do is show that it should be something um, to enhance the ability to deliver the care. 
And again, the use of telehealth as a primary means of delivering physical therapy should be an exception and documentation supports the clinical justification. Um, as you know, um, through, through the APTA and through most of the programming, we talk about it's a part of an overall treatment plan. It is not usually the essential, the, you know, the first and primary source of delivery of the treatment plan. It's a complement to a treatment plan. This was um, this one also um, initial physical therapy evaluation should be performed by a licensed PT. First of all, it's important to say that physical therapy evaluations should be formed by a licensed physical therapist. Again, we would prefer that chiropractors, physicians, and others are not performing evaluations and calling them physical therapy evaluations. So putting that in there kind of restates that piece. But also one of the really um, important pieces to us was going back to when we were um, passing direct access legislation, uh, there was a lot of concern, for, particularly from the physicians, from the medical society, about how direct access, how a um, underlying condition could be missed uh, through a physical therapy evaluation. And did physical therapists truly have the training and expertise and ability to know when it was time to refer to the appropriate healthcare provider? So taking this to the stretch to say now PTs don't even have to lay hands on someone and can do their evaluations completely virtually may have been too far of a stretch for us to go now, having had just passed direct access in 2016, no, 2018, and um, to now say uh, the professions come so far that physical therapists can perform all the evaluations remotely might have caused some problems with direct access, particularly when we try to amend that language and loosen up some of those restrictions in the near future. So we felt that this was probably an important piece to reassure, reassure um, the physicians that we were mindful of the importance of that evaluation, particularly when it came to direct access. Um, a patient receiving physical therapy must be able to request and receive in-person care at any point during the treatment. This, again, is in compliance with the Telehealth Act. And But the second component is that is the physical therapist providing the telehealth must have the capacity to provide in-person care within the state of Illinois. So um, uh, this is a stickler um, because I know there's, we've talked, I've talked to some different people about people who would like to provide specialty care and just provide it via telehealth. And then, and then if the person um, needs to be seen in person, refer them to another provider. But there was the problem with that is, is it comes on the insurance end and the cost end. It's a, it's not, it could be detrimental to the patient on the cost end who when they, um, if you hand them off to a new insurance or excuse me, a new provider, um, there there will be either a new evaluation charge or a reevaluation charge that either the insurance company or the patient may have to pay out of pocket or towards their deductible. Plus, there's that the other factors, you know, are 
the patients, the responsibility or the relationship between the, that initial physical therapist and the patient, and then them, you know, kind of the conflict that that patient will feel having to be referred to another provider and rebuild that relationship and that trust. And so um, we really felt strongly that having the continuity of care is an important part of physical therapy practice. And so um, it, it seemed to be um, something that telehealth should not circumvent that piece. Um, there are probably workarounds in the fact of how you have, you know, coverage for when you're, you know, you work, you partner up with other physical therapists so that you have a partner that may be willing to see your patients and follow your patients with you. Um, if you want to provide just telehealth services, but that's something that, you know, we're not going to talk about tonight, but it's something to really think about and how um, providing only telehealth services could negatively impact um, uh, the relationship between the patient and yourself, and then the cost factors that would be involved that potentially the insurance company and the patient would have to bear um, the brunt of. So other considerations, um, the Illinois Insurance Code, it sounds great, it sounds wonderful that we put all that into place, but you have to remember that it applies only to individual and group insurance plans med uh, that are medical and accident. It does not apply to Medicare. It does not apply to self-insurance group plans. It also does not apply to insurance plans that do not originate in Illinois. So national insurance plans like Aetna, uh, Cigna, so United Healthcare, who it does apply to, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois. So it's important when we talk about these things, it, it would be nice to say that all of this, every, every single patient that comes in the door that has insurance is gonna have the same exact rules and regs in place because we passed these really nice, neat laws but the reality is there's still gonna be variables and you have to read the policies to understand what national groups are doing, uh, the national um, insurance plans are doing. Medicare is its own federal uh, piece. And what? Um, so the insurance code is never going to apply to Medicare. Self-insured plans get to set their own rules. So they don't have to apply. And by self-insurance, that's an that is a group insurance plan that the company has decided to self-fund. And then it's usually managed by someone like Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, who is the, who the Illinois Telehealth Act applies to is everyone residing permanently or temporarily in Illinois. This includes individuals and group plan members, self-pay clients, Medicare, Medicaid, and self-insured plan members. Um, so some components of the Telehealth Act apply, um, some don't. It, it, so it, basically things can be more restrictive than the Telehealth Act. The other plans can be more restrictive, but they can't be less restrictive. And then the Telehealth Act applies to anyone who has a license to practice in Illinois and providing in-person or virtual care to anyone geographically located in Illinois at the time the service is delivered. And then of course we know the Illinois Physical Therapy Act and rules apply to anyone with an Illinois license or temporary privilege to practice in Illinois. So that I wanted to bring that up because 
As I mentioned, there is that registry. So if you have a Wisconsin license and you sign the registry and you're practicing telehealth in Illinois, you are subject to the scope of practice in Illinois, even though you have a Wisconsin license. So that's important to remember. And last question. Um, so right now, federal the CMS has the waiver. So telehealth, Medicare patients can um, uh, utilize telehealth. If that does not get made permanent, uh, Medicare patients will not be able to utilize telehealth services in Illinois. So that's important to, to keep on top of APTA and work. Um, it, it, I believe it expires 151 days after the um, all of this uh, the federal um, emergency orders expire. So at that point, if they do not extend it permanent, make it permanent, um, Medicaid will, or Medicare will no longer be able to utilize telehealth services. And that's it. Any questions? So I'm finished. Um, I finished on time. Okay. So if anyone has questions, I am happy to answer them. Sarah. Hey, Colleen. Um, you mentioned the JCAR rulings about PTAs with mm -hmm. general supervision. Was there any discussion about student PTs? Um, it's probably less of a concern now that people are going into the workplace together. But during the pandemic, there were some issues with um, needing to be direct supervision. And that usually means in the building together and what that might mean. I was just wondering if that has been talked about at all or considered or anything developed in that area. It has not, but that's a really good um, point to consider. And I don't know, um, I guess it's a good question to ask is, is if you if you feel it's, it's continuing to be something, so you would be like remote student monitoring? So like during the pandemic, if the clinic was closed and the student and the CI were in, the same virtual room, but not in the same physical building, if that would be considered appropriate supervision or not. Interesting question. And, and I think that would be subject to the interpretation of the department. Right. Uh, so we, we can ask them. That it, it was just something that's been brought yeah. up during the pandemic. So I just thought I would yeah. ask. So that's a really good question, Sarah. Um, I'm gonna follow up on it because I think it should. It would be a good thing just to know because if we ever have that circumstance develop in you know in the mainstream again, we should be prepared with a, a way to respond to it. Or maybe an emergency. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Um, there's a few chats. I think. Let's see if I can see them. Um, let's see, Stephanie, is there any guidance on what counts as a documented hardship? Um, there is not, we haven't written any guidance yet because the rules aren't final, but we probably will write some. Um, what has been discussed is literally documented hardship has been everything from, um, it's a snow day to person has a, a you know, has agoraphobia and cannot leave the home to um, 
patient has no transportation and we're, you know, and we've agreed that one in-person, you know, one person, you know, one in-person visit every three weeks, you know, we will try that and see. I mean, I think it's, it's really supposed to be the clinical judgment of the provider. Um, and again, because the law doesn't require it, but the rules do, there's going to be more lenience as to what it what it has to say. So it's just supposed to be there for context to to demonstrate that the that the provider is using good clinical decision making and determining if the patient is appropriate for um, virtual care versus in-person care. Any other questions? All right, well, Linda's giving me the goodbye message, so I guess it's time to go. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in tonight. If you are interested in learning about the disability placards next month, we're going to talk about the rules and regs. We're going to point out where to find all the documents, um, how not to get in trouble uh, for issuing them, and then all the different kinds that are out there. I did not know there was as many as there are. so. Um, it was interesting to read about. So uh, we'll see you next month. Thank you.